Movie Survival Guide is a weekly podcast where I, Gorehound Julia Marchesi, delves into my horror movie notebook to corrupt another one of my longtime chums, Terry Gamble, who is hiding in the creepy horror closet. My mission is to learn the gospel of horror movie survival and to incorporate Julia's wealth of wisdom to become a final girl disciple. Join us as we take a deep dive into everything from OG horror to newly released films, but preferably classics on VHS. We'll talk about obscure details that no one else notices, spin off into alternate casting universes, crush on some dodgy, foxy fellows, and creepy uncles, and arm ourselves with the knowledge necessary to become the The final Final girl. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horror Movie Survival Guide. I'm Julia. I'm Terry. And this week, we are so excited to have an interview with, um, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's director. You know him from uh, Dressed to Kill, from Christine, from All That Jazz, Loads of Billie Jean. It is Mr. Keith Gordon. Hello. Hello. We are so excited. Thank you. We are so happy to have you here. Um, so uh, let's jump right into it, shall we? Um, you. So I want to. The thing that you're so find so interesting about your career is that you've really seen all sides of it as um, an actor and a writer and a director. Um, and we can kind of go through that chronologically. But we start off as an actor, um, and uh, we start off with Jaws two. Yeah. Why, yes, one of the great cinema classics. Uh, <laughs> totally. As far as sequels go, you know, it is well, up there. It actually seems to have a, a devoted following. I, I always thought it was a pretty silly movie. I mean, I think the original Jaws is amazing. Um, but Jaws 2, to me, always felt a little disappointing, to be honest. But it seems to have its fans all these years later. So I'm glad for that. But think about like what, when you were filming it, that must, you must've felt like that must've been amazing, right? You're filming Jaws too. How exciting that is your first role. Oh, it was, it was, uh, well, not only was, I mean, the thing was, my, I kind of came full circle when I was a, a teenager. I was one of those nerdy kids running around with a super eight movie camp to all those people. This, most of this audience, super eight was a thing we had <laughs> we had, we had video. It was a little piece of a celluloid thing. It was amazing. Um, our fans, well, our like, fans get it. Directing way before I was even into acting. Um, okay. I was like, making all these terrible little short films with my friends, and you know that was kind of you know. And I had a comedy group, and we we got the, the school got this black and white video camera that weighed about two hundred pounds, and you couldn't you had to have it on this giant rolling thing, and we would make little videos and kind of Monty Python rip off things and. So I was, that was really more where I started. And I was a huge film fan. I'd go to movies constantly. I interned in the Museum of Modern Arts film department, like wow. filing things That's away awesome. from them. And then they, they'd show me things as, a, as, as favors. Like they, you know, I was a big Kubrick fan. So they showed me Fear and Desire, which at that point was like, no one could, had seen it. And like, they weren't even supposed to have it. And I had to like swear to secrecy that they had a copy. And, oh, wow. Um, that's my kind of jam. Like that kind of super film nerd stuff is what I live for. Like well, that's what I came out of. And then the acting thing was like really lucky and amazing and wonderful. I was, I was, you know, I was in a school play. Somebody saw it. They said, would you come audition for this professional play? I did. I got the job and, and, and suddenly I got this acting career rolling and it was amazing and wonderful and exciting. And I got to work with all these great people. But the fact was on a lot of levels, I was always more excited about the filmmaking side. So as exciting as it was to be on Jaws 2 as an actor, it was also, for somebody who was interested in filmmaking, mm-hmm. it was amazing. Because That's it went on for almost a freaking year, uh, because it was filled with disasters. <laughs> I, started, 
I started working in April. I didn't finish till the next February. Oh, wow. Uh, most people would have made them lose their minds, but I was 16 years old. I got away from home. I got away from my family, and I was on a movie set. And when I wasn't on the set, I was hanging out in the editing room that they had set up down there. So for me, it was like really heaven. It became a, a beginning of a, of, an, of a great film education that I managed to get as an actor. I was so lucky I got to work on these things, and a lot of the directors I worked with were really patient and kind with the fact that I wanted to do what they were doing and they would let me annoy them with 8 million questions and follow them around. And, but Jaws 2 was the start of that. And I just went, you know, I didn't have a very big part in the film, but I would go every day to the set, whether I was working or not. And then I go to the editing room and there was nothing else to do. We were in the panhandle of Florida in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, I mean, basically that was it. That was the entertainment. Uh, I, you know, I was too young to go get drunk. So, uh, basically, and I was also younger than all the other actors for the most part. So like I was like left out of all, everybody's having affairs and breaking up and trading boyfriends and girlfriends. And I, was, and I was like everybody's little brother. So it was like, I just got to sit and, you know, there'd be all the actresses and I'd sit in their room and hear them weep over like, you know, which, which guy in the cast broken their heart. And I'm kind of sitting there with my hand raised going, I'm, I'm here. And they pat <laughs> me on the head and go, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Oh no. <laughs> They're much like your roles that were coming up. Like this is <laughs> precursor <laughs> yeah but you see but the last laughs on on them though right because like you start out and you're doing what you should be doing is actually paying attention on set and learning from what you're doing which is the smart thing to do um and then you go you know straight from that to working with a director who i can't imagine like being behind the scenes and seeing how he worked brian de palma uh with home movies uh which i have seen and i think is great very wacky Ooh. very silly you're great at it very well, fun people have seen it Oh, I, I've seen all. I've seen all the deep cuts. Don't worry. <laughs> if anyone's seen all of your movies, Keith, I'm going to let you know right now. We got a super fan. She may not say that, but I'm going to put it out there. She's seen sorry. all of your all of your films. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm adding you right now. Nice. I, I, I look. I've been very lucky. I've gotten to work with amazing people on every side of the camera. I've had mostly wonderful experiences. I've had, you know, considering that I've been doing this for 45 years, which is just bizarre to be able to say out loud, <laughs> right? Um, the number of bad experiences I've had is really small, and the number of good ones I've had has been enormous. So I've been a really lucky person, mm-hmm. and 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 De Palma was was wonderful. I mean, Home Movies particularly was again the perfect project for somebody like me, because for those who don't know about it, um, which would be ninety percent of even your <laughs> listeners, even if they're film fans, it's such an obscure movie. <laughs> Basically, Brian made this movie as a way of teaching how to make an independent film. He was, he was a a visiting professor at Sarah Lawrence university and he was teaching, you know, making independent movies and decided the way to really teach it was to make a film. So he dug out this old story. He had a treatment for a story. He had two of the students write the script. uh, And basically all of the key crew positions other than cinematographer were these film students. Um, and then they hired a professional cast and I was in it and I was just starting out as an actor and, and but Kirk Douglas was in it and Nancy Allen and Vince Gardenia and all these Garrett Graham, all these amazing, wonderful actors. But the crew was really 90% film students, which was very inefficient in some ways, but was amazing in another way because the energy level was so positive and so high. And Brian really was kind of half directing, half teaching. So for somebody like me who was interested in learning about filmmaking, it was kind of like, okay, dream job, <laughs> yeah. getting to act and have all this fun and work with all these amazing people. But, but Brian was also 
you know, much more than you'd normally would see on a set, really stopping to explain what he was doing and why, and, you know, was really in a mode of being very communicative. And, you know, so once he knew that I was excited and I said, look, can I kind of be like one of the students? And he was like, sure. And so I was constantly looking through the camera and asking him what lens he was using and why. And he talked about why he was lighting something a certain way. And so it was, it was, couldn't have been a better experience for somebody who wanted to move into filmmaking eventually because that was sort of the whole vibe of the movie wow yeah and, and i mean he's the master of like also why is he sp- picking that lens that light because he's you know his lighting and his cinematography you know and all the split screen and all the slow motion and all you know like his way of filmmaking is so specific i think to be able to learn from someone who has such a signature kind of visual style would yes. be astounding and his technical knowledge is is huge i mean brian could have if he had wanted to have been, could have been a great cinematographer. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever worked with a director who seemed to have that deep uh, a knowledge of camera lenses, lighting. I mean, Brian could light a set and often would. I mean, uh, like on, on home movies, we had a young cinematographer who was very talented. But Brian wasn't afraid to jump in and say, no, let's move this light over. I mean, I mean, he knew his stuff. He was really technically super, super deep in his knowledge. So, um, you kind of got both because you got it was an education in all the elements of directing, but but a lot among it was the technical, which was the thing I probably knew least about. I mean, I, you know, I'd made my little Super Eight movies, but but in terms of professionally, what was available, what could be done, what a split diopter was, what you know, what this kind of filter would do, what that that was something I hadn't been exposed to, and and Brian was such a master of that stuff. But he was also really good with actors. I mean, the interesting thing about Brian is that. People don't think of him as an actor's director, but I did two films with him as an actor, and I really loved it. And I actually loved the way he worked with actors. And I I ended up stealing, I think, a lot of my own stuff from working with him in that he left a lot of space for his actors. He, um, for somebody who is such a, you know, people think of, of some directors and Brian's among them as being these kind of very super precise and very, you know, they know exactly what they want. But Brian was also smart enough to know that on a dramatic level, if he tied everybody's hands too much, it would get very stiff. Mm -hmm. So there was a surprising amount of playfulness in the way he would work with the actors. And one of the things he did that I loved and I still do as a director today was he would often do extra takes. You know, a lot of a lot of directors, you kind of if it goes well, you move on. Brian would be just opposite. Brian would say, hey, we've got that version. Try one where you're angrier. Okay, try one where it's sillier. Try one where and and it allowed a lot of freedom and a lot of playfulness. It also, as an actor, allowed you not to feel too neurotic <laughs> because you didn't feel like this is my only chance at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that can happen for actors is you can get very, you can have an idea, but think, Oh, but what if it's stupid? And then they'll use it. Um, but because Brian would do a bunch, you knew, Oh, okay, well this time I'll try that idea. And if it's bad, he won't use it. Right. Um, and so it was really fun. And I really enjoyed working for him as an actor. And I think most of the actors, on his film seem to have a really good time. Um, And I think that's what I like about home movies is that I can tell everybody's having a good time that translates to the actual film. And when you can tell the actors are having fun, then it's fun to watch. Well, and I think that the whole atmosphere of that film, because it was this kind of student film, it, it was sort of a student film energy with a professional film, you know, level of talent and, and vision. So it was a very odd and unique hybrid because Everybody was sort of learning on the job. And there were lots of mistakes that were made. And, you know, because the whole art department was everybody was students, the art department, everything. But, but the mistakes were more than made up for by the enthusiasm. So even when things went wrong, which was also a, a big lesson in filmmaking, because 
The thing is, even no matter how good a crew is, no matter how good everybody is, things are going to break. Things are going to fall apart. Things aren't going to work the way you intended. And among the big lessons of home movies is, oh, well, turn the mistakes and turn the problems into something good. You know, use them as opportunities to do something you hadn't expected to do. Um, and, and it, it was great for that. It really kind of got you that idea of, oh, this is a very moving target, sort of, sort of an art form. It's not something you can, no matter how much you have something in your head on the day of things are never going to be exactly what you thought. And the, the freedom that Brian brought for all his specificity and all his, you know, vision that he had, he'd also was very good at seeing what was in front of him, what was happening with the actors, what was the sun doing that day? What was the you know, oh, I expected that wall to be blue and they painted it pink. Hmm, how can I use that? And the fact that he didn't freak out at any of that stuff, he was very kind of zen about things. He was very kind of, okay, well, here's where we, here's where we are, so let's do this instead of that, was a huge lesson about filmmaking and about the whole way to have a good energy on a set. Yeah, for sure. Um, so can we talk about, um, so Dress to Kill, also uh, Brian, of course, uh, just visually stunning film. And I, so my version of watching Dress to Kill is just, you were the hero. Peter's the hero because you save Liz's life twice and there, there would nothing would happen without, like you got it all figured out. Like this like kid genius figuring it out so much better than any other adult in the story is the best story in the story to me. Does that make sense? Well, I'm a little excited. Excited. Um, well you know, it, I mean, I guess, I guess in terms of classic story structure, he's sort of the hero. I mean, really, I mean, Nancy Allen's character in some ways is the protagonist. And then Michael Caine's character is sort of, sort of the antagonist, but also central. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, that character was based largely on Brian himself. Um, although he was very clear to me that he didn't want me to do an imitation of him, but you know, he had been a, a science genius kid. He had built computers. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the nature of that, that kid was who Brian was when he was a kid, but he didn't want me to do him, which was probably a good piece of direction. Cause it would have been awful. <laughs> you know, but as a young actor, you think, Oh, it's kind of him. I should be like, watching his mannerisms. And, um, uh, and, and what was interesting too, with that was it was originally written for somebody much younger than even I was in the script. That character was written as like 10 years old. Oh, wow. And Brian had started trying to cast the movie and couldn't find a kid that he felt good with, that he felt could handle it and make it work. And so he called me and said, look, are you willing to come over to my apartment? Uh, office apartment he had in New York and, and just read through some of this with me. He said, I don't know if it's going to work with somebody, you know, six years. I was, I was, I, you know, I, he was talking about making the character, maybe 16. I was, I guess, 18 at the time. He said, but he said, we well, maybe we could say you're 16 or something. Could, could you come and read some of this with, with me and Nancy and just see how it plays, see how it reads. And I was sure it was exciting. It was, you know, uh, and I, I went in and we spent a, a good chunk of time just reading through the scenes and trying stuff. And, what seemed to work in an interesting, fun way was by him being a little bit older, suddenly all the sort of sexual double entendres and all that became uh, much more interesting and much more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, he had written those jokes in and the Peter thing and the this, but I think in his head originally, the kid had no idea of what was really being said. It was kind of all over his head. Mm-hmm. Being having somebody who was old enough that they would have gotten those jokes, or that there could be a bit of a flirtation with Nancy, or there could be a, you know, that thing of like, you know, yeah, if I if I knew how to make a move on this woman, I would, you know, mm-hmm. so totally. added a lot to the scenes. And we didn't change. I think I don't know if we changed a word of dialogue. 
we kind of kept all the very kind of innocent dialogue. And then he just said, yeah, just play it all between the lines. And that ended up, I think, working really well and, and, and adding something to the character, uh, which is a great case study. And it happens a lot of why casting off of your initial idea can sometimes be very interesting and not even necessarily rewriting for it. And that can be about race. It can be about sex. It can be about age. But sometimes if you just end up with somebody who isn't what you first thought the character would be, but you don't try to rewrite it. You just you just let who they are and their reality come in and meet with it. Sometimes it brings a whole third new thing out of it. And that was a real good case of that. It's interesting that he would choose that as kind of an autobiographical piece a little bit about himself, right? As, as you have this genius main character kid who's kind of saving the day. But it's also not really about him like you think most people who make kind of biographical pictures make it like oh it's my my story but it's not really peter's story he's in it and he saves it but it's a kind of about the, the grown-ups in it so oh, it's, sure it's just a, a, a very interesting way to do your own story i guess well i think brian was always pulling from his life i mean there were bits of home movies also i mean you know brian's family was pretty wacky from what i could gather and a lot of the humor in home movies and the oddness of home movies Again, it was exaggerated and cartoonized, and you know all that. But, but you know, uh, his dad was a was a doctor and was a surgeon, and the dad in, in home movies is a doctor, and you know that uh, he would just pull, as I guess most good storytellers do, he would just pull from things that he had experienced as a way of grounding himself in the story, even if even if even if the character that might represent him wasn't the wasn't the protagonist, it still was. He was still come bringing things out of, you know, well, well what do I know about? What, do, what, what have I experienced? And I, I think a lot of filmmakers do that. Brian was just much more open about it and would very, you know, if you t- would sit and talk with him, he would just kind of acknowledge that. Whereas, I mean, for example, when I was in All That Jazz and I was playing what was clearly a young Bob Fosse, Bob yes. insisted it wasn't him. And he <laughs> insisted that that character was not him, which was, of course, a, hysterically funny and absurd because it's the most autobiographical ever made and and i think he needed to do for himself as a director to give himself the distance but he was so vocal about this is not me this is not me and yet it was all him so i think brian was just much more comfortable with saying yes i wrote this character this way because it's what i know it's what i grew up with or what i you know but i bet there were autobiographical things in probably all the characters dressed to kill if you sat with him and said you know, what in Nancy's character or what in, in Michael Caine's character's autobiographical, I bet he'd pull things out where he'd say, well, you know, I, there was a psychiatrist I once saw who did this and this and this or whatever. You know, he, he would pull from his life, but I think everybody does. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of writers do do that for sure. Um, well, we have to talk about, Terry and I are big horror fans, but we're also big musical fans. So we can't just skip over the Fosse. Can we just Huge. back up a little on the Fosse? Because that's amazing. <laughs> um, did, so was that just a kind of like a straight, like go into audition kind of scenario? Well, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't. Uh, or is that because you I, were you with know, Roy and Jaws? Like, how did that all come together? You know, it was a, I, 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 was, I was recommended to Fosse by actually somebody who was working on the film in the art department, who was a, 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 a friend of mine and, and, and sort of had, had Fosse's ear. So they were seeing lots of young actors. The thing is, though, I'm not a dancer. I mean, I'm awkward and klutzy. I can barely walk. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I went into audition and, and I kind of thought there's no way I'm going to, I mean, Fosse was already a hero of mine. So I was very nervous, very excited, very, but I, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere because the part was clearly, he was a dancer and dancing was part of it. And, 
So I went in and read, and I guess, you know, Bob seemed to really like the reading, and he said, can you dance? And I said, right, I said, you guys, I'm lucky if I can walk without falling down. And, and he kind of looked at me, and he said, you know what, we can deal with that. And oh. it was amazing. I mean, he hired me, and... Um, you know, managed to through, uh, and it was another great lesson in filmmaking, sort of filmmaking magic, make it look like I could dance between using a double for certain shots, having me do very, very simple things for just a moment in other things. And he was so genius that he could even have somebody like me just move my foot, two foot feet, and he'd film just that. And it would look like it was doing something deliberate and trained. <laughs> um, and knew how to do that at intercut with a double who was a really good dancer. And, and it, actually looks like I have some concept of what I'm doing. And, and I, you know, that was all him. I mean, that, that was not on me. Um, but it was a very, it was a very exciting, but also weird experience. Cause, cause Bob definitely was had, you know, a, a, a manipulative side in his directing that he would do. Uh, so like he, um, you know, the, the, the scene for those who haven't seen it, I'm, I'm playing the young version of Roy Scheider, who's very closely based on Bossy. Um, and it was, this was based on an incident that, as I understand it, actually happened to, to Bob when he was young and playing in nightclubs. And, you know, as a 13 year old kid, he was tap dancing, you know, and, uh, basically he's backstage and he ends up getting sort of, sort of molested by this bunch of strippers. Um, you know, they sort of come on to him, but in this very kind of aggressive way. And he was this innocent kid and was very overwhelmed, ended up coming in his pants and going out to dance with a stain on his pants. And, oh, wow. um, and I, I was, you know, it was very scary for me. I was young and I was working with Fosse and all that. And and he came over to me um, when we were shooting some of it where they where the, where the strippers were starting to like come on to me. And he came over and whispered in my ear and said, you know, it would be really, really good for realism if you could actually get hard. Oh. And, and walked away. And, of course, you know, that wasn't about to happen. And I felt like the biggest failure. I felt like humiliated and horrible and and only later did people say, oh, yeah, that's Bob. That's how, he, you know, he wanted you to be freaked out. And he oh, wanted, people, he wanted you know, the fear and the scene. And, that. and so that was his way of doing it. And apparently this was the kind of thing that he would do, um, which is this kind of, kind of evil genius. I mean, it's not something that – it's not the nicest thing. I will say it was effective. I mean, I was in a completely freaked out, weird, embarrassed place that probably fed the scene a lot. Um, but, you know, and there are a lot of stories like that around him. So – that it was weird, but it worked. And there's always that thing as a director of like, you know, where do you go to, how far do you go to get the performance things you want? And, you know, and he was willing to go really far. And in his case, cause the guy was a damn genius, you know, I, I think it, I, it worked out. All right. Uh, the problem is, you know, I, I, I teach a lot and, you know, there's a lot of young directors who like to think they're God and try to do stuff like that. And it's like, you know, you're kind of like walking right on the edge of, of abusive and, and kind of, you know, mistreating people um it's not something i love as the technique but but you know bob did it brilliantly and he got incredible performances from people so you know at the end of the day i guess that's the, the biggest thing i guess i feel like you have to trust the actors you hire to be able to go to that place anyway like why else would you have hired them so uh, it seems kind of counterintuitive and i'm sure going from someone like brian who you said is a very actors based director to someone like Fosse, who is, eh, that must have been, as a young man, very confusing as an actor. It, it was. I mean, it was fascinating because I was also very interested in filmmaking. And, and, and you know, but, but in the mo that moment was really hard for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, in, and in general, you know, yeah, Bob was much less communicative. He was much more wrapped up in what he was doing. Brian was very, it's funny because people know Brian now say he's very, like, 
he doesn't talk a lot. He's very, you know, but at that point, Brian was very avuncular, certainly with me and loved to kind of chat about what was going on and why he was doing it. And, and Bob was never that kind of communicator. I saw a much smaller part. So he was busy dealing with a million other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I did get to stand around and observe a lot, but I didn't, there wasn't a lot of question and answer stuff going on. Right. Um, but no, generally I come much more from the school of you hire wonderful actors and you make them feel as safe and protected as possible yeah. and trust them to get to where they need to get to. And even if they're struggling, I, I, I try to never do manipulative stuff with actors. Or if I do, I try to do it in a way where I'm like, I'm, I'm admitting I'm manipulating. And like, <laughs> I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'll play with people, but there's, we know the game is going on, you know, like I'll try to get them riled up, but I'll, it, it's sort of like we're doing it with a, with a smile back and forth of, yeah, I'm throwing this stuff at you to get you going. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll yell something at somebody in the scene that, you know, I know might piss them off, but they know that's what I'm doing and I know that's what I'm doing and it's not, you know, it's not creepy and I try to be very careful to not cross the line. But generally, I feel like, yeah, actors do, I think actors do their very best work when they feel safe. And so I feel like my job as a director is the safer I can make it, the better. Because uh, that's when people, I think, will go to difficult places. They have to feel like somebody's underneath to catch them if they're going to be willing to take a chance at falling. Uh, and I'm sure that a lot of that probably came from you starting as an actor, right? Because you know what it feels like now oh, to yeah. be on the other side of the lens. Yeah, no, I think, look, I think everybody who wants to direct should at least take an acting class. I mean, to just so they have that visceral feeling of how scary it is. Because I think people who never acted don't get how terrifying it is even for the most experienced actors i mean you you know if you get alone you know whether i you know working with somebody like, you know jody foster who produced one of my movies or whatever and you sit and you talk to them they'll acknowledge that even even now it's it's terrifying you're you feel naked and exposed and you, you can't really fully know what you're doing i mean you do but you, you can't be objective and it's a very very scary vulnerable thing no matter how much people have done it and so i think every director should have to have that experience so that they can then empathize and, and relate to what actors are going through. Because a lot of like, you know, people talk about actors being difficult and acting out. And yes, I've, I've worked with a handful of actors who were just crazy and super difficult and I would not want to work with again. But I've also worked with a lot of actors who had difficult moments where I realized that what was going on was that they felt deeply insecure and afraid and exposed and that's something that because I'd been there, I think I could do a better job of trying to help them through that place and, and, and help them to feel less afraid. Um, whereas I think if you've never been there, if you've never tried it, it's very hard to really understand. And I, I teach at the, the Sundance Filmmakers Lab every summer. And oh, awesome. that's one of the wow. that they always push is, you know, they always are pushing these young filmmakers to, you know, act and, and to experience it and to get an idea for yourself of what this is like. And they even, when they arrive, there's a, you know, wonderful, wonderful director, acting teacher, teacher, Joan Darling, who's been doing it forever, who actually puts them through like a, ba- a ba- an acting class, essentially makes them get up and, and act and, and sort of see what that feels like. And the point is not being good, but the point is seeing what that sensation is of being in that space. So that then when you're on the other side of the camera, you have a real understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's can we let's move on to Christine, can we? Um, yeah. I uh, I am a constant reader, Stephen King fan to the nth degree. Um, so the fact that you got to uh, meet Stephen King very exciting to me. Not to mention John Carpenter, of course. This is like that's like a trifecta. I know. Even on the phone, I never got to meet Stephen face to face because 
he wasn't really involved with the production. Um, he didn't write the screenplay for the for the film. That was that was Bill Phillips. So he wasn't really hands on at all. So we had one very nice phone chat. He was couldn't have been sweeter. I mean, it was it was it was scary and exciting. It was like, oh my god, it's Stephen King. But he's one of those people who, like put you at ease really fast. It was like within ten seconds, it felt like I'd known him for a year. Um, he he talked talk to you about Arnie and like about the character. Yes, although again, he was very like, look, you know, the script is its own thing, you know, and so we talked about what he was thinking when he was writing it, but he even understood. He said, look, you've got to go with what you guys are doing. And he, he seemed to understand the filmmaking process on that level. So it wasn't like I got a lot of, it's got to be this way. I mean, if anything, he seemed very, um, and I think at that point he'd already either played with directing or was planning to start directing. Cause it, you know, he's, he's gone on to actually do some directing on his own. Mm-hmm. And so I think he, he got that idea. So it was almost more a moral support thing and, uh, you know, and uh, Hey, I wanted to turn out great than it was him sort of getting on the phone and telling me what to do. I think, I think he respected John Carpenter enough and got the dynamics enough that he wasn't going to get in and start like, you know, whispering directions into my ear. Mm-hmm. So it was really more of a friendly chat where he talked about, you know, his love of cars when he was younger and it, but it was not, as I remember ever got, it never got like, like uh, really detail oriented about Arnie or anything that was much more John. Uh, okay. that was really what the, you know, that, that, exp- you know, I mean, John's movies are John's movies. Uh, um, you know, he's, he's coming in with his vision. And so uh, we never approached it like, Oh, this is Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came into it like, Oh, this is John Carpenter because okay. he's the one there who's really got the movie in his head and, and is kind of building it. Um, so and- just getting to talk to, to, to King was really nice. And like, like I say, he couldn't have been, he couldn't have been sweeter. He seems like, yeah, a really down to earth kind of guy, which is what was so great about him. Um, and so what was, what was Carpenter like as a director and how did you get involved in the project? He was another blast for me as a wannabe filmmaker. Cause he was also really patient with me and kind. And, you know, I mean, he teased me mercilessly, which I actually loved about him. Um, you know, he was, con- Oh, does he want to be a filmmaker? Huh? How would he do this? And, but John had a real, it was really fun to work for him. I, I, you know, I got the job the usual way. I just auditioned a bunch, you know, I, my agent submitted me. I had been doing a play in New York. You know, I, I was already getting some attention as an actor. I was, I was working a decent amount and, you know, I went in and auditioned and I read a couple times and I guess they had me read with John Stockwell, who they'd already cast and see how we'd be together. And, um, and, you know, I remember going in with like different guises for Arnie. I had like my, my, my rolled up sleeve t-shirt for the tough Arnie. And I had the, you know, my, my sort of fake glasses for the nerdy Arnie. And, you know, I did all that actory stuff. Um, but John was a lot of fun. And, and again, the auditions were kind of playful and we tried different things. And we seemed, I think a lot of the audition process, certainly for me, but I think for a lot of directors is also seeing what your vibe with the person is like. It's not just, are they good, but it's like, will I feel like I can work well with this person? And I remember feeling in the auditions, like we got on really well, like John would throw ideas at me and I would sort of run with them. And I think he liked that. And we, we had, cause it was a kind of good dialogue started up very quickly. Um, and so I got the job and we rehearsed for about a week and that was really fun. And there was a lot of stuff that went on, like figuring out what the character looked like and the costumes was a whole process. And, mm-hmm. and he was again, very, um, he was great about letting me be involved. I was still quite young. I think I was like 20 or 21. And he really let me be a partner much more than he had to. He could have just you know, said, do this and do that. But he was much more open to hearing what I had to say or why I thought things. And like I said, then he would tease me mercilessly about them. You know, <laughs> you know, every time I do, I say, Oh, there's a method actor. And it's like, 
Um, you also made the set really fun, which was something, again, I, I, I took away and tried to bring into my own work when I started moving into filmmaking. He would, he'd play practical jokes, um, mm-hmm. you know, some which were just silly and, and, and very low tech. I mean, he would, he was constantly hiding, the, you know, microphones, film microphones have a windscreen, like this foam that goes around them to prevent the wind from making noise. John loved to take that off on the mic when the sound guy wasn't looking and hide it. Uh, <laughs> Now, this is the kind of thing that you'd think we wouldn't have time to do on a film, especially on you – know, Christine was not a high-budgeted film. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a negative pickup, which means that Columbia Pictures had agreed to distribute it, but they weren't paying for – I mean, they were sort of covering the cost up front, but it was about an $8 million film, which for, you know, for a film with a lot of special effects and stuff, even then, was not a big budget at all. Uh, and we had to move fairly quickly. And yet John never lost his sense of playfulness and humor. And there was like this big ongoing, you know, with very elaborate uh, practical joke with one of the producers where um, they convinced us because we were going to be shooting in some of the tough areas of L.A. And they convinced the producer that there was this gang called the Clover Gang that hated <laughs> movies and hated, you know, people who made movies and particularly hated producers and were really angry that we were coming into their turf. And we had to walk out for them and the guy got paranoid and then they, they, he said, we've got to get security. And so then John had like some, some, some crew members like grandfather dressed up like this 80 something year old guy showed up in a security uniform. And he was like, well, if it's the Clover Gang, I'm not, I'm not having any part of that. I'm not, you're your own. And this went on for quite some time, and it was great. It just, it just brought a kind of energy to the whole thing that was so wonderful. And 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 another thing was that John would do things like we would, um, he would do like barbecues at his house on the weekend, and there'd be a lot of the crew and cast there. Uh-huh. And, and even when we all ate lunch together, you know, on movie sets, it often can be this really, I think, destructive sort of class thing, and the actors all go over here, and the crew goes over there. And there was much more on Christina's thing of everybody was kind of hanging out together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't the stratification that you see, and that was really nice and really made the whole thing a blast. I mean, you know, I have all these photos of, of John, like off camera, making faces at me, like when I'm trying to do a, a, a semi serious scene. <laughs> and, and that was like my memory of that movie was that it was really fun. I mean, that was probably the most fun job I ever had. Um, was just, you know, going to work every day was, was a blast. And then the character was such so much fun to play with and the cars were so great. And it was really, it was an adventure. It was definitely like, like every day was an adventure and uh i i have just nothing but really sweet memories of that one. Oh, that's a, that's a so, yeah we're so good to hear and like you are and i think your performance in that film is astounding to go from this very kind of meek nerdy character to someone who's clearly being possessed by something evil and beyond himself and did you read christine before you did the film i sure i do i did read the book which was very interesting although again because we had the screenplay we had bill's excellent screenplay and, and John had his vision of the character. I tried not to put too much weight on the book mm-hmm. because the Arnie we were creating had to be that Arnie. It had to be the Arnie that, that Bill wrote and that John was seeing. So I couldn't get too hung up on where there were differences, you know, and I think it's a trap. A lot of actors, it's easy to fall into when there's a book that something's based on, you know, you can get very tied into, but the book says this, but really in a way that's immaterial because every film from a book is going to be different. Right. So it was much more important to discover who this Arnie was and get too hung up on the Arnie that was in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, like I say, it was a process, which was really fun. I mean, I remember the shopping for clothes with the costume designer was like a big deal and figuring out 
how far to go with the transitions and and the whole idea of bringing in a, a 50 styles of the clothing, which wasn't where they had started from. Mm-hmm. And then kind of having fun with that and even a Western sort of thing that started to happen. And, and then John getting turned on by those ideas and going, oh, let's go further with that. And, and finding the tone, which was fun because the, the, the film's bigger than life. It's a little tongue in cheek. I mean, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of dark humor in it. It's not just straightforward drama. I mean, it, it's, so it was like, how, how much bigger than life do we go? How much of a touch of a cartoon is there to the nerdy or to the evil Arnie? And how do we make it still rooted in something where you relate to him emotionally, but we're not trying to say this is naturalistic reality. And we're not trying to say you should take this all seriously and literally. And there are ar- archetypes, you know, whether it's Buddy mm-hmm. representing the archetypal bully. And, and, and John was definitely playing with that. He was definitely, you know, he has that sense of humor. That's one of my favorite things about his work. I mean, whether it's escape from New York or whatever, the way he, he, you know, he plays with things and there's a, there's a humorousness to a lot of what he does. Um, and so trying to find that and have it not be too big and not too small and not too real, but not too over the top was always a, an interesting adventure. And we would do a lot, we would do a number of takes often, you know, where we would dial it up and we dial it down. And, and, and again, just like with, with De Palma, that was always fun for me. I loved being able to do things multiple times and, you know, and, and John and I would often say, he, and it's something again that I've stolen. He would say, yeah, if that was a seven, give me a nine. And he's like, Oh no, that was like, take it back down to six. And, and that's something I've actually adopted. And it was really fun and useful because it gave me a lot of freedom to decide what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew what he meant. And it was something that we could do together and find together. And it was a lot. It was great. And then getting to work with, you know, Robert Prosky and Harry mm-hmm. Dean Stanton. And I mean, yeah. for me as a young actor, these were these were heroes. So just, just being around those people was amazing. And I love the, you know, I, I, I mean, Alexandra and I still – friends and i think she's wonderful and i mean it was it was really it, it was really great i mean oh. i don't mean to just i don't mean to just fell as my grandmother would say but it was that <laughs> of um do you have a favorite stephen king book can i ask you that oh that's interesting I've, you know i've only read a handful of them it's not i i have to admit it's i'm really embarrassed you're, you're, you're not supposed to say that you're supposed to say i know all of this work inside out but i i yeah. uh I, i've never i'm not as big a reader as i might be i'm, I'm mildly dyslexic and I think it's part of why I fell in love with movies because reading is a more of a chore for me, whereas mm-hmm. films are very easy. I can watch them. And, um, but I, I think my favorite book of his was one of the ones he wrote under his, his other, his pen name. I'm, I'm blanking out on it. Um, Richard Bachman. Yes. It was, it was like a novella um, called the long walk. I think. That's my favorite. <laughs> I love the long walk so much. Yeah, I think it's great. It's so sad and disturbing and, 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 and sort of subversively political. And, and I just think it's a really interesting book and not many people know it. I mean, it's cool that you, that you, that you had the reaction because I feel like mentioned a lot of Stephen King fans and they're like, Oh, I, I don't know that. I, you know, it's, it's the, the crazy thing about that one is it's actually the first novel he ever wrote, um, really? which blows my mind because it's so incredible. And uh, it's just so stark I guess there's, he works, does so much with so little. Yeah. Um, that's what it's I love about it. It's a simple idea. It's like a really, it's like, a, it's, it's one of those like one sentence concepts and he goes so deep from that, from that place. And, and it's, it's really, I mean, it's scary, but it's just really sad and it's really affecting. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and disturbing. It, it's, it's a kind of scary that isn't a lot of his stuff. I think of is playfully scary, right. but that one is really disturbingly scary. I mean, it's really like, he gives you, he makes you feel what it would feel like to be a kid knowing that if you stop walking, you're going to be shot dead. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, which is basically the plot of the story. I mean, I'm not giving much away. This is all revealed very early on. Yeah. But basically, it's, it takes place in a sort of alternate universe near future time when every year, boys, I think at age 13, whatever age it is, uh, you know, are, are sent on this walk. And and hundreds and hundreds of kids do it. And basically, the idea is the last man standing, the one who walks the furthest, gets money and prizes and fame and all that. But everybody who stops walking, who falls down, who passes out, you know, is shot dead. So it's this kind of horrendous, terrifying um, exaggeration of where we were as a and are as a society that kind of, you know, glorifies that 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 you know, winner take all, life or death, sport the metaphor thing, and it just and and you're just walking along with one of these kids and. Yeah, and as they, they, they treat it as like a like a like a sport, like it's a holiday. Like everybody in the country gets to go. It's like the Olympics, yeah. you know. And, and everyone watches it, and thousands, tens of thousands of people line the road, and you know, it's yeah, it's, it's treated like this big fun thing. Except little kids are having their heads blown off, right. and it's really, I mean, it's it's quite an amazing book. And I did not know that's his first book, but man, what a yeah what a place to start. I mean, it's brilliantly written. I mean, there's no sign. I mean, you would never think that reading it. No, of course not. So uh, if you haven't read The Long Walk, uh, Julia Marquesi and Keith Gordon recommend it. Ding! Ding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I'm a big VHS collector. Uh, and when uh, VH- video stores were dying, I would go and buy a bunch of videos. And there was one that I could never find. And it became my holy grail because I couldn't find it in the wild. And it was just weird. Uh, and the movie was The Legend of Billie Jean. Um, and I could, I could never find it. So it was like my Holy Grail VHS for so long. And finally it was like such a thing that a friend bought it for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I have it now. Now it finally, finally, you know, now it's out on, on Blu-ray and it's, you know, it's had this whole second, it's had this whole second life. It was a, it was a complete disaster when it came out. I mean, it just, I think it played like one week in the theaters and then seriously. Uh, oh yeah. It, it was, was on TV so much though. Because <laughs> it, it, it found this kind of cult audience. Yeah. But, but you just didn't know what to make of it and what to do with it. And it got pretty bad reviews and just, just disappeared when it first came out. And then, yeah. And then it had the second life that was, that actually has been quite good for it. I mean, and so, and it happens a lot with movies in both directions, things come out and get a ton of attention and then disappear off the face of the earth. And other things come out and they're huge failures and then they become successes later. And and that was an interesting one in that it changed a lot. That was sort of one of those projects that while I was working on it evolved, like it, its whole personality changed. Hmm. Um, and I think that's maybe part of why it became a bit of a, of an orphan child, because when I first read it, it came off much more as a grown up, almost a satirical piece about sort of teen movies and about the absurdity of it all and the absurdity of kids like elevating this motor scooter to this level of like life and death and, and, and a symbol. And so there was, there was something that was very sort of, I think initially in the script, at least I read it as aimed more at a grown up audience poking fun at the way kids see themselves. Hmm. Um, and that, as the film was made, I think they went, whoa, wait a minute. We want to aim at a young audience. So I don't know if we want to be satirizing it. I don't know if we want to be, but I think that process was sort of going on in the middle of making it in terms of what I felt was like coming in from the studios. And of course, as an actor, you're only getting bits and pieces. You know, nobody's sitting down and saying, well, here's what we're talking about with, you know, TriStar or whatever. So, but it felt like we all were supposed to take it more and more seriously the further along we went doing it, which was just odd. 
Uh, and I remember feeling even at the time, like, I'm not quite sure what this movie is. And I think that had to do then with maybe why it struggled with, with when they were releasing because I don't think anybody had really decided. And then the audience sort of decided for it who found it. And there was a young audience who did get into it and did have fun with it and did really love it. But, but during the making of it, it was a strange, it was, that was probably my most quote unquote studio experience. And in terms of that whole thing of studio being involved with making a movie and a lot of voices and a lot of different, you know, uh, uh, that's what I'm looking for kind of agendas going on. Um, and, and again, I wasn't parting any, but I was just a hired actor, but I was kind of aware of this, this weird vibe of it kind of kept feeling like, Oh, well we're making suddenly today we're making a slightly different movie than we were two days ago. Um, huh. That must have been very, very confusing. But it is such a, it is such an interesting film because it, ha- it has this very, like large, right? Like they're comparing her to Joan of Arc this entire time, right? And they're like, they're like, that's a big comparison, guys. Like, okay, let's go for it. Like, go if you're going to go, go big. Well, and that's um, the thing is, and when you read that on paper, it came off as much more, um, uh, like that that you that you weren't supposed to take that seriously. Like much more that like that was her vision, and that was the craziness of the kids around her, but it wasn't necessarily the film's vision. And then in the final film, it feels much more like the film has that same point of view. Yeah. And the hair, the haircut, right. The big song, the whole bit. Yeah. And then it just, you know, and that's about everything. It's about the way things are shot. It's about the music. It's about the, and it was sort of a fascinating thing to watch how that could change. That perspective could change as they were making the movie and as they were looking at the footage, I guess. And as they were, um, so it was, it was it, it was weird. Although, again, as an actor, you're just kind of there doing the best you can. It wasn't like upsetting. It was right. more just kind of like, oh, that's odd and interesting. Because um, like when I, when I auditioned, I played this much more playfully and much more tongue in cheek. And now they're saying, no, no, it's much more real. And so it was an interesting sort of experience. Uh, and what's neat is at the end of the day, it seemed to again like really found an audience for itself. Oh yeah, people are into the fair's fair like the whole bit. It's it's got a whole scene, and I mean, you play a character who has like a slide going from his bedroom window to a pool, so that's pretty much the like the coolest thing of all time. <laughs> so epic! And that was a lot of fun. I got to say, all that stuff was just a blast. I was, you know, again, a very fun character to play. Um, you know, uh, I really, you know, Helen was really sweet. Helen Slater was really mm-hmm. nice. Uh, you know, not another one of those those, those experiences where. As an experience, it was it, it, it was terrific. I mean, you know, I, I, Gene Stockwell was somebody that I was a big fan of. Peter Coyote, all these people, were, you know, so getting just to hang out around them and talk to them and hear their stories was as as a young actor and wannabe filmmaker was all pretty damn interesting. Um, so we're, let's let's uh, let's go deep. We're going to go real deep now because uh, okay. this is a film that I want to talk about. That uh, I I happen to know that you met a gentleman on the set of Home Movies named Mark Romanek. Yeah. Um, and I actually know Mark because I oh. made a documentary that he was in. Um, so he's an amazing, an amazing man, like on a level I can't even explain. Um, so you wrote a movie called Static with him and starred in it as well. Yeah. So I know this is a, a deep cut. So let's talk about this deep cut. Yes. No. I I love Static, and I'm I do too. And one of my only for I I mean I love Mark. I think he's a I do think he's an amazing, amazing filmmaker and talent and person. Uh, my my biggest frustration with Mark is that he's basically buried Static. Um, there have been a lot of people over the years who've wanted to put it out there, and he's just been very adamant that he doesn't want it. And at the end of the day, he's a filmmaker, and 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 you got to respect that. But I I think he's always had a blind spot around it. Mm-hmm. I think he sees its flaws. And yes, he was a young filmmaker, and there's stuff that doesn't all work. And it, but I think it's kind of an amazing movie, and I think a lot of what's amazing about it is what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's just sort of sad that that it's almost impossible to see. 
Yeah. And, and the thing got like, great reviews, I mean, particularly in Europe. I mean, we got, um, you know, it did really, really well in Europe. And, and even in the U.S., the reviews were mixed, but there were a lot of really, really good ones. We had an amazing review in the, in the L.A. Times from Sheila Benson. And and it was this odd, wonderful movie. Basically, Mark Mark was, was worked on home movies. He mm-hmm. wasn't one of Brian's students technically, but he had worked as a PA on The Fury. And he heard that Brian was doing this movie, and he wrote Brian a, a note saying, you know, I worked on The Fury, and I'd love to be part of this thing that you're doing where you're taking film students and making this movie. And and so Brian said, yeah, come on. And, and, and Mark became the second AD on the movie. And he and I struck up a friendship because we both love Stanley Kubrick, and we, we just shared a lot of like artistic tastes, and, and we just also made each other laugh. And so we became really good friends. And uh, sometime after Home Movies was done, and we'd stayed in touch, you know, he – reached out and he said, you know, I've got this idea for a movie and I think that you'd be good for the main character and I don't really have a story yet. But he said, I see a guy working in the desert in a factory that makes like plastic crucifixes <laughs> and he saves all the ones that come off the line screwed up and he puts them up on his wall. Um, <laughs> and that's what he sort of had. And he said, and then there's a model that he meets and falls in love with. And that was sort of what he had at that point. And I went, well, I love the crucifix thing. I think it's hysterical. And he and I started just talking and writing and, and we had about 8 billion Chinese food lunches and um, <laughs> spent about a year, I guess, to write the script together. And, 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 you know, neither of us had, had done anything like that. We hadn't really either of us collaborated as writers before, but it was a really fun process. A lot, we'd sit and do a lot together. But we'd also go off and write scenes on our own and then trade them and each edit each other's stuff. And, and, you know, we'd argue and fight, but it never got testy. And it was always, Fun. I mean, they, you know, when they were when there were disagreements, they were they were creative art, creative, fun, artistic disagreements. They weren't like like you know vicious human disagreements. And I think it's because we loved each other so much that we kind of kept their perspective. And so the story evolved and evolved and evolved, and we got to the point where we really liked the script that evolved about this guy who was this inventor in the desert who invented a TV set that he thinks can tune in heaven. You know, his parents mm-hmm. died, and um, he kind of withdrew from the world and built this TV that to see them in heaven. Um, and the, the model character he had evolved into this musician and that became Amanda Palmer's character, who was somebody that was his childhood sweetheart who had grown up and lived out in the real world and came back to town right when he was going to, as it happens that this character, Ernie, the inventor was going to unveil this, this invention to the world. Um, and I just thought it was a wonderfully odd you know, strange universe that Mm -hmm. that Mark and Mark was really the main, the the view the the vision of it all. Um, And we spent about another year getting, trying to put the money together, which is a very slow process. And this is indie films were not a big deal yet. This was before the indie film boom. So there were, there weren't a ton of companies doing them. And this was certainly a weird script. I mean, this wasn't a script, you know, most people we showed the script were like, you guys are out of your minds. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, awesome. Yeah. But we finally cobbled together, you know, the budget and went out to the desert and made the movie. And I, you know, I, again, for me, it was as a wannabe filmmaker to be involved from beginning to end and sitting sitting in the editing room and be, doing the casting. And it was it was an amazing experience. And I really love the movie. I mean, I, you know, uh, I feel like sure there are flaws. I mean, we were both in our mid 20s. We both had a lot to learn. But I think what what Mark achieved was way more than where he missed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a kind of a great movie. And, you know, I, I'm really sad that it's so hard to get to see it. Cause I think he did something really special and that asks really good questions about the nature of belief and, and, you know, what is truth and what is 
craziness and where's the line between creativity and madness. Uh, and it's very funny. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's not, I mean, those all sound like very serious themes, but it's wrapped in a, in a, in a, in a story that's actually funny and odd and playful and great music. I mean, Mark has amazing musical taste and mm-hmm. so it's a, a incredible score that he put together with everything from from elvis presley to like orchestral maneuvers in the dark to i mean it was just just very eclectic um and you know i think it's a terrific movie and it, it's out there you can like find their their bootleg tapes of it floating around and but it's it's not easy and like you know and 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 if i could do one thing it would be convince mark to let that because i've been approached a million times you know can you help us get it out there it's like I've tried. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've I've, be- I've begged, I've pleaded, I've asked, but he just, you know, he just all he sees is what's wrong with it, and and I understand it because it's as a filmmaker, certainly he's so much more sophisticated now. But I think you know what it lacked in sophistication, it made up for in in his passion and enthusiasm and and bravery as just somebody young and trying stuff. I completely agree. I think it's, and you know, you and you are having such a good time on screen as well and really bringing this character to life. It's really, so we will, all, I will add my plea to Mark Romanek to please uh, let's, let's let everybody watch. I bet Static. our listeners will help too. Maybe we start a petition, you know, <laughs> uh, Static I don't there. know if it'll work. I've been trying, I've been trying for like 30 years, but, but I hope it, I know, we, try again. we try again. Maybe it's a new moment. Maybe we can get yeah. it out there. Right. Um, so, so this, I mean, but this must have led now. So now you've, you're moving into writing, um, and going to be starting to direct with the chocolate war, um, and then just kind of snowballing out from there. Um, and you've been directing ever since, uh, so many of our favorite TV shows, like so good, like Fargo, Dexter, the leftovers, nurse, Jackie, masters of sex, better call Saul Homeland. Like my goodness, like the Renaissance of TV, you are one of the go-to directors. It looks like we, well, again, I've been I've, I've been I've been very lucky, and I've been a co- combination of lucky and picky. Uh, <laughs> you know, because certainly, and especially now as I've gotten older, I, I'm, I'm more and more of the mindset of I only want to do things if I really am excited about them and want. I only want to direct something I want to watch. Yeah. So you know, I, and 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 there's also things that I, you know people will send me stuff for TV directing where I go, this is really good. It's just not me. Like I, I've gotten also be much more objective about where can I really bring something to something and where could somebody else probably do it better. Uh, and, and, but it's, it's really what happened was with, with this renaissance of great television on cable, the role of a director became very different and network TV for many years when I was growing up was, you know, all they, all, all they wanted was a cookie cutter that, you know, they, there was a way everything was done. And the last thing they wanted was anybody doing anything weird or stylish or different, or, you know, that, mm-hmm. that was an anathema to, to network television in the seventies, eighties, nineties. And then it was really with the way that things took off it was HBO and things like the Sopranos and where suddenly filmmaking and, and a very high level of filmmaking and very stylish filmmaking became a huge thing on TV that people realize that this can work and that people can respond to very sophisticated storytelling, uh, both in terms of story, but also in terms of style. And so that was a whole new thing. And, 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 and it threw the TV world uh, on, uh, you know, on its butt because they were like, well, we don't know how to do this. So they started reaching out to independent filmmakers because we had, we had this combination that they liked, which is that we were used to doing stuff that was more risky and out there. But at the same time, we were also used to doing things on time and on budget because TV is so much faster and smaller budgeted than, say, a, a studio feature film. 
Sure. So indie directors made a lot of sense because we could, you know, for us to shoot an hour and eight days didn't seem insane. Whereas to somebody used to a huge studio budget and schedule would look at you and go, I can't do this in eight days. What are you crazy? Right. Um, but like for me, like I had more money like on an episode of Dexter than I ever had on any of the movies I ever made. So it was like, for me, I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. Sure. Um, <laughs> And I just was lucky enough to get into the right time because it wasn't yet the coolest, hippest thing. I mean, now TV has become, you know, the art form of visual storytelling. And so you've got, you know, Ridley Scott directing TV shows and all the people who are humongous directors and, and, and you know, award-winning people. And I, I think right now people, you know, young directors are saying to me, how do I break into TV? And I'm like, I don't know. It's really hard now. Yeah. Um, you know, that because between the people who are doing TV who are already established or are on a very high level and the people who want to do TV who are like, you know, mega star directors, it's become very difficult. When I got in, it wasn't yet the coolest thing in town. You know, there were people who were just starting to go, Hey, maybe I'll try TV. So I was kind of able to sneak in there mm-hmm. before it became, you know, if you haven't won an Oscar, you know, we're not interested and did some work. And then I got established as, Oh, this guy's good. And, he's easy to work with and, and he, we like what he does. And so that I, I had a reputation by the time it got to be impossible to get in the door. And, you know, a lot of any career in this business is luck. I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> you, you know, it is hard work and there's talent, but there is a lot of luck. Maybe that's true. I've never worked in another business. Maybe it's true of any business, but certainly the arts, you know, the dice have to come up well for you and there's only so much you can affect that. And I've been insanely blessed with the way my dice have come up. So I caught TV right at the right moment mm-hmm. and then I started working in it. And because I got to work on a few really good shows like you know, Homicide and Dexter and things like that, then I kind of got established and then I was able to pick and choose more and say, okay, I'm only going to do stuff that I think is really well written and has great actors. And, and so I've been lucky enough to be able to stick with that. And, and I feel very grateful for it because, you know, I'm sure doing TV that you don't like is as miserable as doing any job you don't like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> trying to get through it. Um, and I you know I've had a couple of those experiences where I was disappointed, where the reality of the doing the show was not as good as the, you know, right. Where the show seemed great, but the experience on the set was not good. Sure. But as I said, with everything else, uh, it's been a small percentage. Most things have been, most things I look back on, I think very, very fondly of. Um, so we're, we're wrapping it up here. We only have a few more minutes, but I have a couple more questions I wanted to ask. Sure. First being, uh, if you, if, if pandemic, and money and like difficulties were no object. Uh, what would be your dream project? Well, you know, it's, I, have a, I have a film I've been trying to make on and off for 15 years uh, called The Muse Asylum, um, uh-huh. which is was a, just a wonderful novel. And and somebody brought it to me like it's actually it's over 15 years now. Now we're coming up on 20 years. My God. <laughs> Oh, I'm so old. No, you're <laughs> not. No, you're not. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was in 2001. A producer brought me this book and said, "You know, I think this would make a good film." And I read it and went, "Oh my god, this is a, it's a it's basically a story about three young people, um, two 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 guys and a girl. Um, both of the guys are obsessed with the same writer, mm-hmm. and they're both obsessed with the same woman. Uh, one of them has, is schizophrenic." genius but schizophrenic and the other is is just not he's a smart guy he's a wannabe journalist he's not crazy and the book is told from three different perspectives it's told from the crazy guy's perspective the journalist's perspective and then it's interspersed with the writing of this writer that they both love it's kind of this jd salinger-esque writer who nobody's ever met and these guys are obsessed with 
And the book does this masterful job of kind of weaving these three, in a way, separate stories together and having them all dance together and ultimately come together in a wonderful way that I found very powerful and very moving and just great. And, and it, to me, it felt very cinematic. I mean, I was reading it going, wow, these different visions of these different worlds are so interesting. And so I wrote a script and, and it's one of those projects as with all of these indie projects, I mean, all of my movies took years and years and years to get made. And this one, you know, has come close a few times, but it's challenging because it's not wildly, obviously commercial. It's not, you know, there's no real, there's no real violence or sex or genre elements or it's just character study. Um, and yet it's not super, super cheap because a lot of it takes place in New York city and kind of for story reasons sort of has to be, you can't sort of set it in the middle of nowhere and have it make sense. And so it's not something you can go do for $150,000. Right. Um, so it's been a struggle and you know, like I say, it's come close a bunch of times and I kept, I've put it aside various times over the years. It's not like, you know, I've, I've been, when, when people say, and this is true, probably anybody you'll talk to when they say, I've been working on this for 20 years, it doesn't mean you've been sitting there working on it. It means you know, you put it away for three years and you go, oh, I still love that thing. Let me try it again. And yeah. I'm in the middle of yet another try, um, you know, and we've got a lot of nibbles and a lot of people going, oh, we like the script so much. And, but how would we sell it? And can we get a big movie star? And, and that always becomes the struggle with these movies is like, well, if you can get, you know, these three huge, super famous people who are in incredibly high demand to sign on, even though you have no money, right? it's like, which is always like, well, if I had them, I wouldn't need your money. I could go already. And that's, that's the, the, the sort of paradox that, that independent filmmakers face all the time. Because it's right. always like people want these insane casts of amazing people, but getting the attention of those people, getting them to read the script, much less say yes, you know, when they're busy having multi-million dollar offers thrown at them. And you're saying, well, we're going to try to make this whole movie for a couple million dollars. Right. Your salary is going to be very small and we don't have the money to make it right now. But will you please put aside what you're doing and read this? I mean, that alone becomes this Sisyphean, Sisyphean <laughs> thing of rock up them out. Um, well, well, this is the this is the modern day, and if if that if that funding doesn't go through, then crowdfunding is always there. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, well, what's tough though with this one is the story because of the size of it. You know, there are things that are really well designed that are very small. Uh, like I have another project that I love that is much smaller in scope. That crowdfunding would probably make more sense. But crowdfunding over a certain level gets really tricky to actually get. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. Um, the thing I'm actually examining now, and it's an interesting process, and I'm, I'm really early on it, I'm really trying to say, is there a way to rethink this to make it much smaller? Mm-hmm. And technology is so amazing now. You look at films that are people are like literally shooting on their iPhones, and they, they right. look good. I mean, you know, it's, it's like it's not – it's no more looks like some bizarre, weird experiment that doesn't really – work very well i mean there's now home equipment and prosumer equipment that it's at an insanely high level and so i'm sort of educating myself to say if i had to make this for half a million dollars could i do that is there a way to do that and have it still be what i would want it to be um because part of the what i loved about the story is that there are these three very different points of view and for me as a filmmaker the whole excitement would be giving it three very different visual styles oh yeah for these different worlds and so it's one thing if you have a story that's like three people sitting in a room talking and it's all handheld and it, it doesn't matter what it looks like and you can kind of light it very generally. That's easy to do. But when you're trying to do something much more stylized, yeah. usually it's trickier. It takes more time. Lighting is more tricky. Equipment's more. But, man, it's come so far that I'm kind of taking a breath and say, wait a minute. Before I say this is impossible, let me 
let me, uh, you know, dust off my old guy cap and go <laughs> some younger filmmakers and go, how would you do this? What equipment would right? you use? Is there a way to do this? Um, okay. So, and, you know, we'll question. see. That yeah. All right. Yeah. Our last, our last question is if you had to recommend a horror movie to our audience, what would it be? Ooh, God. Um, well, I mean, it depends on what they see, haven't seen. I mean, of course, but what are your favorites? Mine are, I mean, I mean, all time favorite movies. I, I don't look now. Yeah. Uh, you know, The Shining is always great for me because it's, it's bigger than horror and Stephen King. And um, The Innocence, I think, is a great, great yes. movie that kind of people don't know this as as much now. Yeah, we've done an episode on that one and on Don't Look Now um, as well. They're both terrific. Oh, they're just amazing and 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 on filmmaking level, just so powerful. But boy, I, I feel embarrassed. I feel like there's probably a list a mile long that I'm not thinking of. Those are the ones that sort of immediately come to mind. And but those are three amazing ones, so they're not. It's not. They're okay. not. You should be ashamed. <laughs> and then there's uh, like thrillers that aren't really horror, but kind of go into that that sort of same kind of tone of things like, well, what's the great Charles Lawton film? The only thing he ever directed with Robert Mitchum. Uh, oh, oh yes. It's not really horror. It's sort of suspense, but it, it sort of because he's like he is. Robert Mitchum sort of is the monster in that movie. It's like a mm-hmm. monster movie but with a human being monster. Yes, that's an incredible movie. Um, if people haven't seen it, that's one really worth seeking out. So, you know, I don't know. That's a few off the top of my head. Thank you. Uh, Keith, uh, this has been delightful for me, like the highlight of my pandemic for sure. Ah, ah. <laughs> I'd like to say that that's hyperbole for my dear co-host, but it is not. Uh, she is a very big fan and I'm glad she kept it together for this interview for you. We adore you. Good well, job, Jules. And thank you, Keith. You are lovely. Thank you guys. It couldn't have been more fun. Oh my thank gosh. You. Thank you so much. Hang on after. Uh, thank you guys for listening at home. Join our Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, all the good stuff at Horror Movie Survival Guide. Follow us and ask us more questions and let us know who else you would love to have on the show. Uh, thank you again so much, Keith. We'll talk with all y'all soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Keith.